Hi everyone, welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, today we'll be talking about location, place and abilities. I'm really excited for this week. I'm going to practice speaking more slowly and clearly and trying to make it a little bit more simple so it's better for the podcast format. So we'll see how this goes. I, I kind of think probably I will end up speaking quite quickly at the end because, you know, Australian, etc. Um, but I want just to, again, take this opportunity to give you a little bit of background about the readings and a brief explanation about why I decided to create two weeks, one space, time and relationality, and the other location, place and abilities. Because, I mean, normally when you kind of see this sort of curriculum design, particularly in geography, you'd have something like space, place and time, or space, place and relationality, and then you might have you know, location, time and mobilities, etc. So you kind of see it in that way. Um, but I specifically separated it out because I think I want to speak to the different kinds of divisions a little bit and separate out space and place um, because there are, as we saw last week, these kinds of binaries that appear uh, in the interpretation of space and place and I think they have quite a big impact on the way in which we interpret location or locative media and what it means to be in the world. And so what I mean when I talk about these binaries, we talked about them a little bit last week. So, for instance, Massey described space as abstract compared to place as real. And so she, she began to work and sort of critique that binary. Again, uh, I, I mentioned Manuel Castells uh, talking about the space of flows, which is this, this space of uh, information, communication technologies of the network, of the internet, of, of logistics and mobility versus the space of places, which I think implies this idea that place is static, that it's kind of fixed in a particular way and that it has this fixity. And I think I want to trouble that a little bit, particularly when we think about something like location and its relationship between, again, place, location, and this this question of ability. Uh, And the sort of starting point for my thinking here is is, uh, an American, I suppose, philosopher, cultural theorist, Edward Casey, who's written two books. The first is called uh, Getting Back Into Place and the second is called The Fate of Place. And he works quite hard to establish, and I haven't said him because it's very continental philosophy, very Heidegger, many Hegel, super Althusser kind of stuff um, and, and quite, I'd say, arduous to read. Um, but he tries to sort of investigate this conception of place and what place might mean and, and why perhaps place hasn't been so central to the conversation as perhaps space and time has been around questions of globalization, around questions of acceleration and around everyday life. And so he's writing this in the in the 1990s. And what he, he the kind of, I suppose, discussion he brings up is if we think about place as a, as a locus or a loci, this idea that you have a place and then you travel from that place to the next place, what do we kind of imagine in between? And he talks about the idea of, 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 a, of a loci um, or he talks about it as a line, so this idea that when we move through space, we imagine a point and then a line 
leading to another point. But actually dotted throughout those points are more places. And they're often not places that we perhaps necessarily recognise ourselves that they might be. But at any given time when we're moving from place to place, we're moving through both space and place simultaneously. So we might be moving through anyone else's place, per se. And so he describes this kind of idea as what happens is you end up getting so many points, the points all become the line in a way that place, rather than space overtaking place, as many critics of, of globalisation have said, and, and this is precisely what Massey was trying to argue with her global sense of place uh, argument that we read last week from For Space, that rather we can think of place alternately as overtaking space. So the world is completely placed and actually to find an abstract space in that or even a relative or relational space can be difficult again depending on how you think. And I think the crux of this question for me at least is 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 place rather something that can be located? Is it linked to a particular material location? Is it linked to a particular landscape? Or is it something that's carried with us in our bodies and our memories? So do we carry place around with us? And so if for instance, you think about somewhere you went as a child that you haven't visited since, that place, is it still place? Like is it, is it the, the actual landscape itself or is it our memory of it that actually constructs this sense of place? And I suppose as well accompanying that question is a second question, is then place about individuals or is it about communities? Is it about individual memory? Is it about collective memory or social memory? So this idea that a community might have a sense of, of conversation over the meaning of a place, or, or is it both? Is it actually one of those concepts that really troubles these other kinds of distinctions between like the individual and the social, or the um, psychological and the sociological, like it really troubles these distinctions, this place, one of these, these concepts. And so I think for me this question also calls into... Uh, sort of critical, this critical space, uh, the idea of mobilities, so how we understand mobilities. So obviously Massey writes that space is always open and it's always fluid and it's always flowing and different to perhaps the abstract sense of space, the mathematical sense of space, the way in which she reads a relational space, it's always kind of co-becoming its material and its virtual, it's it's hybrid to use De Suze Silva's term. Uh, and so there's this kind of constant movement, everything's circulating. Uh, and so I think again this question of ability is is core to the question of place. Again, do we carry place with us? Is place something that is mobilized through us? Or is it something that's linked to a very distinct and perhaps more stable locational landscape? And place is really important because place is one of those social constructions that is super contested, both when we're making locative media, but generally in urban planning or rural planning, any kind of planning around things like heritage construction, memory, etc. Place is a key site of contest. Uh, and so I think for me, Bringing mobilities into that question makes sense because I think the question of what we mean by mobility and how we understand mobility is also central 
to how we might think about and understand place. And I'll get into a little bit that get into that a little bit more later when I talk about disatome. Uh, and so from this question about you know place on one hand being mobilized through us or being this this mobile global sense of place, um, something that's about memory but might be embedded materially but also might be embedded in our bodies and our own kinds of perceptions and our stories that we tell each other or tell ourselves. On the other hand of that way of sort of thinking about place, we also have this idea of location, which is this very punctuated and punctuating, um, precise way of expressing uh, a space or a moment in time and space. And so if we think about, for instance, and I've talked about location here, we can think about that in, in multiple different ways because that's what this course is about. But thinking specifically about something like the GPS timestamp, which presents a set of two coordinates and a time. So you do get this kind of punctuated. And so, you know, if a place is one coordinate and another place is another coordinate, firstly, how big are those coordinates? How big is this place? It doesn't give a sense of, of surface or shape. And then when you try and create it by creating uh, something like a rectangle, you end up with borders, which is also kind of contraindicating towards our sense of place, which is fuzzy and perhaps not as fixed. Um, and I think as well the ambivalence of those coordinates. They are, I suppose, abstractions or like inscriptions about how we understand place, and this is why the Latour reading is in there as well. And so, you know, I'm looking up my location at the moment, but it comes up as 37.87325 uh, north and then minus or 122.26396 west, which is actually the middle of the Berkeley campus because I've got my VPN on. Uh, and so if I take off my VPN, then my um, my location comes back as something different, comes back as my place in Manchester. And so there is this kind of ambivalent relationship on one hand between location, which is just a descriptor of where you are, and a sense of place, which is a much more social, metaphorical, poetic way of thinking about the world. And so I think... You know, again, this question is raised when we talk about location, are we talking about something that's just the technical iteration of something like place, which is a te technical way of pointing to a space and a time? Or is the friction there a little bit more deeper and a little bit more complicated? You know, what are the, you know, is it, you know, what is the, the politics of the disconnect between the technical on one hand and the social or cultural sense of place on the other? And is it enough to say that the technical is simply just a representation or do we need to really think more carefully about the tools that we use to make those representations? So I'm going to get into the, the readings just a bit. Um, there are four readings. Uh, so I'll start with Latour. I'm really sorry. I was reading it last week, prepping for this podcast, and I'd honestly forgotten just how convoluted and frankly annoying it is. Um, so I'm hoping none of you tomorrow on Thursday have, have chosen to really have to grapple with it because it is it can be a bit tedious and I think it's this I suppose French assumption of centrality in the way of their thinking uh, and so it, it, it assumes that you have a lot of knowledge uh, that I don't think at all is axiomatic or, or should be assumed um, so I'm really sorry about that 
as of next year, I think I'll be setting a piece from Bell Hooks Belonging uh, rather than having to, to deal with two uh, pretty f- privileged white French dudes in the same week. So I'm sorry about that. But I'll give you a basic rundown of what he's saying so that you don't have to try too hard to read it. So basically, he's discussing the rendering of the world into a scientific form of inscription or print, while also arguing that's not universally understandable. So he's talking about the way in which we observe the world scientifically and then render it as a kind of representation or as a set of data or an inscription Uh, and then we focus on that as the kind of results so to speak uh, of that particular piece of research Uh, and so we might think about the way in which sociologically we can go and interview some people we interview them we record it we transcribe it we anonymize it, and then we mostly just go off the transcriptions. We don't necessarily go back to the original recordings, and we very rarely go back to the individual interviewees. And so in that way, the data, scientifically speaking, almost supersedes the site of its production. And I think similarly, you know, we can think about the same with um, uh, data in the scientific field as well. So my brother works on gene therapies and genomics and mostly what he does is run the same experiments over and over again and from that he creates a set of data and it's from that data that most of the papers that he does is written. So in a way the data generated by the experiment is kind of understood to be more important uh, and more substantial than the experiment itself. Uh, And so it's very much about So when he argues or when he's discussing the way in which it's inscribed, he's also arguing that this assumption of of universal understanding isn't necessarily the case either. Um, And there's a politics, the way in which information about the world is communicated or mobilised from person to person or place to place or site to site. And so he uses the example of La Perouse's journey uh, to find better maps. So ignoring his weird Orientalism, about the Chinese geographers, um, he's arguing in a way when it comes, and I think this is why I chose it because he uses the example of maps specifically, uh, he's arguing in a way that the information about the landscape to the island of Sakhalin is more important than the island itself to the scientific mind. And he says the same as well when he sort of constantly refers to Cook's maps and La Perouse's use of Captain Cook's, or was Captain's or Lieutenant Cook's maps. And I, I find this particularly interesting um, so I remember reading this piece when I was doing my PhD uh, with my supervisor who was a true Latourian and being a little bit confused about the kinds of assumptions that he makes. So, for instance, when he talks about... So basically what happens is in 1770, Lieutenant Cook, aboard the Endeavour, sails up the east coast of Australia, makes a series of maps, makes a landing in Botany Bay, writes a bunch of stuff down, collects a bunch of samples and images about strange animals, etc., sails off to Tahiti and um, Hawaii and then ends up being killed. But those same maps that he created are then used by two different groups of people. Firstly, the First Fleet in 1789, who's coming up the east coast of Australia, uses those maps and those descriptions to try and figure out where Cook said Botany Bay was and whether or not that would be a good place to start a new colony in Australia. And then 
not even two or three weeks later, La Perouse is using those same maps to go up the same coastline. And um, the, the irony being when the first fleet arrive at Botany Bay, they find that the water's too shallow, so they have to move to the next uh, uh, harbour further up where they can put their big boats because they've got a much bigger, deeper set of boats because they're transporting hundreds of convicts slash indentured labour to pretty much start this new colony. Uh, La Perouse, however, is travelling in an explorer's boat and so he stops at uh, Botany Bay and rather than the south side where Cook landed, which is now called Cornell, he lands on the northern head, which is now called La Perouse and is a, a popular beach spot. And so this idea of this kind of immutable mobile, so he talks about the way in which Cook's maps operate as immutable mobiles so this idea that Cook went, he observed, he rendered his observations immutable as a map, which could then travel around with their information, could be decoded, and then could basically be used uh, again as a kind of navigational device. And we might think about postcards in the same way. So, you know, the idea that if you've got a picture of something and you send it to someone, that person doesn't need to go and see the pyramids, they don't need to go to... China to see the island of Sakhalin because they've got a rendering, an immutable mobile, so an immutable image that is mobile, that can move, which they can use to understand that landscape. Uh, but what's particularly interesting, I think, for me, um, firstly, is that in this concept of the immutable mobile kind of makes two assumptions that I think for me as someone who's worked with maps, really troubles uh, the, I would say, reality of what actually happens. So firstly, the first assumption I think is that what it represents itself is immutable or changes so slowly that it isn't worthy of update. And I always think about La Perouse using Cook's map to land at La Perouse and to, to stay there for a while, so much so the fact that it becomes called La Perouse and in a way he... He takes those immutable mobiles and goes off, but in a way he's also left an immutable immobile behind in the kind of imaginary of the landscape. The first fleet saw his ship past the heads where they were a little bit further north and that was the last anyone really saw of his ship before he died. Uh, so you've kind of got this idea of, you know, that it's not just that the landscape, it's this assumption that the landscape itself isn't necessarily changing all the time it's not updating it's not mobilized and the second is that it also remains immutable like the immutable mobile is constantly mutable in that it has people you know fold paper it fades it wears it's constantly changing as well and so this idea that something once it's printed remains static remains the same also I think ignores the materiality of that object and so you know they've got these redrawn kinds of you know, ideas, so this idea that firstly what it represents is an immutable and secondly that what it is isn't immutable either, but it is mobile, it does move, I'll, I'll give them that. And so the kind of, and I, this is my supervisor, Sibyl, when she comes up with this idea called the mutable mobile to try and understand how we think about 
something like locative media or maps on mobile phones. So even though I contend that maps in the old sense, like, like, like Cook's maps, are immutable, uh, aren't mutable, like are mutable in that they do change, they fade. People write their own notes on them, they'll update them. And so, you know, many constant new surveys were drawn from old surveys of, of places. So obviously the first fleet had to make their own maps. And Cook's maps really weren't, they were good, but they weren't perfect because they didn't show any of the interior. So he didn't go inside, he just looked at it, the, the continent from the coast. Um, but compared to that, if you think about something like Google Maps that updates every couple of seconds, so, you know, the information on it changes and because it's based on a server, not a piece of paper, you can update road closures or street names, etc., as they kind of happen. So there is this extra sense of mutability that you get. So I think uh, this idea of the mutable mobile, you have at once an inscription that's constantly changing, but it also is a mobile inscription. So it, it's moving everywhere and it's changing and often it's changing according to where it is as well. So you get this, this idea of mutability and mobility all together. Um, and just to quickly finish on the tours. So the idea of the immutable mobile requires, I think, I think he's got nine kind of aspects that he looks at. So there's the mobile. We've talked about that and the immutability and I've kind of critiqued that a bit. This idea of flattening, so the idea that the kind of complexity of the world can be flattened into a surface inscription. So again, we might think here about the photograph or the postcard and this idea of the realistic or scientific account of the world, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the week on visualities, that it's scalable. So this idea that the data itself or what it's representing has a kind of a relationality within its own function that means that you can pull it out or push it in um, and so that you can make it bigger or smaller because it has a kind of uh, ratio to itself uh, that means that that isn't going to be warped. Again, so if you think about making a picture bigger or smaller, then it's reproducible and he talks a lot about the rise of the printing press and this idea of reproducibility and I think that rings kind of echoes some of the critique that Walter Benjamin was writing about uh, the age of art in the in the age of mecha mechanical reproduction. It's, I think, this idea as well around immutable mobile where you don't have to go to the Louvre to see Mona Lisa anymore. You can now see a picture of, of Mona Lisa on a poster or a postcard um, without having to go there. And so there is this kind of idea of reproducibility that is essential to the immutable mobile. Secondly, it, uh, sorry, sixthly, it's recombinable. So you can actually combine the information with other information as well. So it's not just a single set. So a map, for instance, you can combine the map with other maps or with a list of place names or a directory, etc. So this idea that it has a relationship with other forms of, of information and you can constantly update it or change it or add it into other different forms of communication. Uh, it's superimposable uh, so that you can put stuff on top of it perhaps. So again, thinking about a map that you could, for instance, drop data pins on your map or you could colour in certain areas. So if you think about all the ways in which you can superimpose a map, 
uh, combined with written text, so it could be annotated, so a postcard, for instance, has a space on the back that has uh, room for written text, uh, and same with maps, with all their annotations, and finally it could be merged with geometry. So there is this, this mathematical sense as well to the immutable mobile. And you get the same, of course, with, with photographs and the idea of the rule of threes and composition, etc. So that's Latour. Uh, happy to talk about it. Um, I think, again, the headline here is that he's got this concept of the immutable mobile whereby information, whereby a, a place or a location is abstracted into a representational format like a map and then that particular object, that immutable mobile, can be reproduced. It moves around. It tells information to people far away about that place without them ever having to visit it. Similarly, you could do, argue the same for a body with your medical records. I mean, doctors will look at your medical records. They don't even need to see your body necessarily. So it's this question of abstraction and the mobility of information. So I figure we just get the French dudes out of the way first. So De Soto, I think I'd love to be able to write like De Soto uh, because he, he doesn't really feel the need for referencing uh, in the French tradition, I suppose. Um, but he is at least poetic, so, you know, there's some nice quotes in there, I think. Uh, and so what does De Soto write? So he opens at the World Trade Centre uh, looking down at the, the sort of throng of people underneath and he starts to talk about, you know, this difference between looking down and being a part of uh, a kind of city space and I think asks this question, why don't people crash into each other? What is what is happening? There's so much movement happening here. What is the underlying structure that enables it to function? You know, why don't people just crash? Like there's a footpath, is covered in people. Yet they, they dodge, they move around each other, they, they have all these ways of communicating. Uh, and to really get even to this question, so what he's done earlier in the book, so this is from the practice of everyday life, he's, he's combined the thinking of another French dude, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who talks about practice uh, and the habits that we form, and uh, our good old favourite Michel Foucault and, and the question of discourse, so knowledge production. And so... He does this to make an argument about the practice of everyday life, that when we make practice-based decisions, so in this case walking, we're at once engaging in habitus or habit, so we don't need to think about how to walk. But there's also a discursive political element there as well, that also there's a, something about knowledge production, something about the way in which the footpath disciplines you to stay on the footpath and not walk on the road. There's also this kind of biopolitical kind of politics about where you can put your body there as well. And so I think this is important context. And so what he argues is that in the concept city, which is this purview of planners, we discussed this last week in relation to Lefebvre, as a rational synonymous city, so this, this idea of the ideal city, the concept city, uh, is decaying, it's falling apart. And these cities that were once the realm of housemen, for instance, are now the sites of multiple different discourses and practices and of these kind of politics, this power struggle between 
those who invest in ideal cities for the planners and everyday citizens who walk and live the city. And he argues that this power struggle occurs through two key kind of uh, tools, which are strategies or like these big ongoing pushbacks uh, and tactics. Uh, and this is what this chapter is about. It's about tactics, which are these everyday embedded resistances that perhaps we don't even know that we're doing. Uh, and so the exact, uh, well, the, the, the kind of terms he uses are multiform, resistant or resistance or tricky or stubborn procedures that elude discipline. The, the constant will of the city to be undisciplined, to not fully conform to the surveillance, to policing uh, and to planning. And so he looks at, I think, two different ways or two sort of areas in which these kinds of, you know, uh, disciplinary elusiveness occurs. So the first one is walking. Uh, and so the, in the first section he talks about pedestrian speech acts, which I often think about is, you know, or walking is political, obviously. And so he talks about the fact that pedestrians move and don't crash into each other and the way in which they move to the city is actually a really tactical way of dealing with certain kind confines of power. And he doesn't talk about, but I often think about um, desire lines or donkey paths or donkey trails. I'm not sure what they're called in the US. And basically what I'm talking about, so if you imagine, and you will have 100% seen them in parks or on campus, um, so you might have a footpath that, you know, crosses or it doesn't go where it wants to go. And on the grass, you get this little worn bit of dirt, like a trail through the grass where people obviously walk as a shortcut but isn't actually made in the footpath. And so these are desire lines. And, I mean, I find them quite useful for actually figuring out how people go, but they are also evidence of the the way in which the city, the way in which people kind of evade discipline. They do find their own ways. We can also think here about, you know, jaywalking and other mobility strategies as well, so the fact that people still jaywalk, the fact that uh, people occupy footpaths. So in Hong Kong, people will often sit on footpaths with their own little chairs because there's very little public space. So you've kind of got the way in which people will step around those people and the interactions they might have. You might have uh, different kinds of tactics that pedestrians use. I mean, you can also sort of see it in a more strategic sense. So um, Rebecca Solnit in Wanderlust outlines how in the north of England, very close to where I am at the moment, there was a big push for what they call public footpaths. So these were old footpaths that people would traditionally walk upon, but as landowners um, stopped letting everyday people use them, it became this big, big movement. So now there are foot, public footpaths through fields and field and, like, uh, meadows and people's properties. My One of my supervisors actually has a public footpath that runs through his backyard that are actually, there's a the right-of-way, um, so the public has a right-of-way to use those footpaths and the owners of the land have an obligation to maintain those footpaths for people to use. So there is this kind of strategic but also tactical uh, element here. He also talks about uh, gestures and communication. So if you think when <laughs> you uh, are walking towards someone and you both go the same side then you go to the other side and you have this kind of ho-hum where you're figuring out, I mean, you don't often say anything but it's a gestural or communicative 
expression of these kinds of tactics as well. And there are all these different ways in which people have uh, communicate without necessarily saying anything as well. So there's all these kind of tactics there for walking in the city. And I mean, uh, Nigel Thrift wrote a sort of follow-up piece called Driving in the City, where he talks about driving. Um, but one of the tactics I often think about in Australia is if there are police cars further ahead with a speed camera and the cars coming the opposite way, you've seen the police car, will flick their uh, their indicators, their blinkers, um, to let other cars approaching the police cars know that they there's a speed camera up ahead. So you've got these kinds of tactics there that form against these disciplinary procedures uh, of, of the city, but I think of, of space and place more generally. The second, so on one hand, you've got this mobility. Mobility eludes discipline. On the other hand, he talks about myths, and I think this is more about place than it is about mobility. So you kind of get these two big tropes in this piece. One is mobility on one hand and the other is, is place. So he talks about myths uh, or you know, if walking is political, then I think myths is very much like stories are political, so the way in which we tell ourselves about place and space. Uh, and so the first idea is that he has is that, you know, this idea of all spaces are probably places in a lot of ways, uh, so particularly in the city, so you get all these uh, different modes or different places that you might drive through that other people live in, so you kind of have this tension to begin with. Um, and so away from the space of planners, uh, we construct meanings out of names. So there are certain relationships we form maybe within our own lives to certain places and spaces that aren't necessarily legible to the disciplinary structures of the city. Uh, so he gives the example, I think, of someone who uh, is from Sev going towards uh, the Rue de Sèvres, for instance, because there is a certain association with that particular name. And when you're a tourist in a city, you kind of tend to move towards places that you might have heard about uh, somewhere or where your family used to live or etc. So you've kind of got these um, this pull of the familiar. But we also construct, you know, there's the proper name of something, but there's also casual names as well. So I remember when I started... Uh, working at the beginning of the year, someone said me said to me, "Welcome to Cal." And I was like, "What the hell is Cal?" Um, but of course, you know there is this way in which we might personally refer to places that again aren't necessarily legible to the tools of mapping and location surveillance that, uh, for instance, Kirkin talks about in the next reading, but give us a sense of you know of of place of relationship. Of, of living in, and I think as well, shared experience of, of space and place as well. And um, so there is this other difference, and he argues that's quite a political difference as well because it is antidisciplinary in that it is producing a bottom-up knowledge, not a top-down knowledge about space and place. Uh, and then the sort of second kinds of myths or stories that he talks about um, other than names and symbols are this idea of like the credible and the memorable, so <laughs> mythologies that are believable but not necessarily true or that are part of our own memories or experiences. And so not like a shared sense of a name like Cal, but actually based in our own 
habitus or inhabitation of a place. And so he again, he uses the example of, you know, that's where old Lady Dupuis lived. Uh, that's where this old woman lived. And we've all got places, I'm sure, um, where so-and-so used to, that's where my grandparents used to live before they passed away. That's where my mum grew up. Um, so you kind of have this sense of place that, again, isn't legible to planners. Uh, and perhaps it is so, for instance, I saw recently that Ursula Le Guin's house has been put up for sale for some huge amount of money, or the, her childhood house. Uh, but, of course, the market doesn't necessarily clock that as something that might be significant for someone. It's mostly uh, just it's a house, it's worth this much money, perhaps it's worth a little bit more because there is this uh, idea of memory, but, again, you get this kind of relationship. Uh, and so this is kind of different as well, I suppose, between stable meanings and fluid meanings and the way in which we make our own meanings about places as well. So there's that weird metal kind of circle or grate that's out near the Bancroft Library where I'm told if you touch it, you won't get a 4.0 GPA. And so you get these kinds of mythologies as well, and I'm pretty sure there's no part of the uh, UC Berkeley campus master plan that talks about this particular place as being something that needs to be preserved or not. Um, it's, it's a mythology rather than uh, an official place or, you know, sort of he talks about in the sparse proper like a proper place, like a proper now, I suppose. Um, and, and similarly, like, you know, you've got mythologies, again, this idea of credibility. So this idea that the, Ever the basement of Evans Hall is haunted because the Unabomber worked there, which he didn't. He didn't work in Evans Hall. But, of course, it's, it's a totally credible kind of myth. So you, you get these kinds of tactics along the other way. Um, against more official, I suppose, readings of place as well. And so I think what we can take from this and where he begins to conclude in Walking in the City is that, uh, and this is, I'm going to quote him here, I actually think, because I can't say it better than he can. He writes, Places are fragmentary and inward-turning histories, past that others are not allowed to read, accumulated times that can be unfolded, but like stories held in reserve, remaining in an enigmatic state, symbolizations insisted in the pain or pleasure of the body. I feel good here, so the well-being underexpressed in the language it appears in, like a fleeting glimmer, is a spatial practice. And so where Massey perhaps I think is arguing for a global sense of place, he's, um, I think, arguing for a palatial sense of space that actually a local sense of space in the opposite direction that actually spaces and spatial practices and places are, are thoroughly intertwined and really difficult to separate and are kind of linked at once to location but also to mobility, the way in which we move uh, and where we move and how we move and, and time as well, the mobility not just of space but of time and, and how things change. So about 20 minutes left so I'm going to go to Kurgan now it gets much easier from here I think uh, to kind of talk a little bit more so Kurgan's piece is, is much more I suppose technically focused piece so it focuses more specifically on the technologies of location rather than say like these big questions about place and mobilities that we've seen in the last in the previous two readings and so I think for me uh, what the Kurgan piece does is really ground what the stakes of the concept city or concept place are as they 
might be applied, applied to mapping. So she begins by talking about how the blue marble map, which is this big map of, uh, not, so not a map, an image of, the, of one half of the Earth, one hemisphere, uh, is actually an assemblage of different parcels of satellite data that have been pieced together to resemble a whole. So she talks about this, this first, this idea of fragmentation, and we can think again back to Latour's idea around the, the immutable mobile or the way in which pieces of data are collected and represented. Uh, and actually, in a way, become more than the original thing it's representing. Uh, and so she's talking, the, her, the whole book, uh, close up at a distance, talks about uh, three key ideas, which is location, so the GPS, which we discussed a fair bit, remote sensing. So for those of you who are not physical geographers, remote sensing usually involves using satellite imagery to detect changes or to map, so for instance, using like to, to detect changes in land cover, for instance, or certain colors, uh, so you can actually uh, produce different layers of color that actually enable you uh, to sense different things, or from either the satellite imagery, or you could fly a drone over and, and sense different changes there as well. And then mapping, of course, which we understand is like cartographic or inscriptions and so I think when she talks about location and these technologies she links it really clearly to the kind of production of a military or the, the military industrial production of location during the 20th century and I think for me this pace particularly in relation to everything else we're reading this week raises the question of is place being co-opted into location is, is this idea that location is becoming the immutable mobile or the mutable mobile of place, but kind of leaving that behind. And the reason for that co-opting is it related to this idea of military industry that it is easier to work with location than it is to work with a fuzzy social cultural idea around place to do with memory and the individual in the community. Uh, and so I think, again, thinking back to Latour, and when she starts talking about, so Gallison's um, piece, Einstein's Clocks, Poincaré's Maps, we're kind of moving from Latour's idea of the uh, inscriptive to Kurgan's kind of writing about the machinic uh, and the rise not only of relative space but of relative time and the way in which technologies moderate or mediate, construct these kinds of relationships. And so... Kurgan advances this notion of location as a kind of relative structure. So one place is always in relation to another place. So what uh, that's what location does. Uh, it places something, so it is, it is totally relative. It places A in relation to B. And so we can think about that in terms of maps. So place A is here, place B is there. Knowing, just knowing where place A is is not really useful unless you've got something to relate it to to give you a sense of distance or or a relationship there. And similarly, you might think about the same about a, a family tree, for instance. So, you know, so-and-so is the child of so-and-so who's the child of so-and-so. So that relationality is really important. Um, but the relationality now is being established, again, machinically through these complex systems of satellite towers, uh, RFID, radio towers, etc., um, satellites, 
global positioning like systems, but also the actual locators themselves, etc. Uh, and so, you know, this this kind of complex question of location as being relative, but also being mediated, I think, rises. And I think finally she points to this this politics of representation, which again is the point of this week to really think about this. Um, that there is a, a politics to the way in which location or place is represented through location or space is represented through location. Uh, and, and she refers back to the Greeks. And I, I often wonder why we always go back to the Greeks. And so I want to take a minute here just to read something from a book that I've been reading uh, by a colleague of mine, Tyson Junker-Porter, who he works at the, I think it's Deakin University in Melbourne. And this book is called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Uh, and so he writes, and so this is him sort of yarning or storing, uh, and I'll take a photo of the map that he's talking about and put it online. So he writes, this is both a map and a kind of compass, but is not aligned with magnetic north. In the old way, direction is dynamic and based on seasonal solar movement from the point of view of where you are and when you are standing, walking or camping at any given moment. Time and place are usually the same word in Aboriginal languages. The two are indivisible. At the centre of the compass is a point of impact during a creation moment or site. This and the other points represent seven spirit families and their sacred places. The first man and first woman are at the east and west, with their lines of travel shown, creating different kinship groups and sites as they move through country. The travel lines on the inside arcs of the symbol form the shape of the first man's dance, oh sorry, the first man's canoe. The lines of travel on the outer arcs show how he paddles to turn it as the sun turns, making direction more dynamic than the modern magnetic version. This is enough to hurt your mind. What? North is not a fixed magnetic point. East can be north. It changes depending on the seasons. I recommend being dismissive at this point unless you want to take a couple of days off work to lie down and reset your brain. That seems to happen a lot of the, to a lot of people in this particular bit of sand talk. It gets worse when old man says that this view of the symbol is a flipped image, that you can only see it properly if you bend your mind underground and look at it from beneath. Together, all the lines in the sand talk map show the shape of the Australian continent, which is an upside-down version of the Makeda version we know today. In many non-Western languages, including Maori, Middle Eastern and Aboriginal languages, north is down and the south is up. Early maps of the world were like this too, before Europeans began their empire building inverted the charts to place themselves at the top. They also stretched the half, top half of the map to make themselves look bigger, so the equator is actually lower than it should be and tiny Greenland looks like a continent. If you don't believe me, look at any map and see where the equator is. It's not in the centre but below it. In old, man's, in old man Juma's map, Tasmania is at the top of the world and it is a lot bigger. And so I think, you know, for me... This gives a completely different perspective of thinking about some of the questions that Kirkin is, is talking about, this idea of location and relativity, but also that it doesn't have to just be a spatial relativity, but also a temporal relativity. It's this constant mobility as well. So when Tyson's talking about, uh, or perhaps I should say Junker Porter is talking about the way in which north and, and directions and this idea of the you know locating yourself changes depending on what season it is depending on what moon cycle it is, et cetera. So you've got all of these big cogs in the wheel. And I, I often think, again, what kind of implication could this kind of thinking have for rethinking what we mean by location, what we mean by what it means to know 
where we are and when we are at any given time. And I'll put that book up too. So last but by no means least, I think perhaps most conclusively, we have Mimi Scheller's piece, Mobile Mediality. Now Mimi Scheller, uh, I think she's a sociologist, and she's one of the key thinkers in what they call the mobilities term in geography and sociology where there was this sort of big push to really acknowledge the role that mobility plays in the political, social, economic construction of everyday life. Uh, and so her and John Ari, I think, co-founded the actual journal called Mobilities, uh, where many of these ideas are, are discussed. And I think what she starts to really articulate in this piece is that mobile, well, the mediation, that this idea of, of mediation, of, of, we think back again to immutable mobile versus immutable mobile. And I think Shella here is very much dealing with the mutable mobile. So it's not just a device that moves, but actually the inscription itself constantly changes. Um, so mediation is constant and mobile. And the questions around this kind of mutable mobility is characterised by either very dystopian visions of, of total control, we're totally on the thumb of, of surveillance kind of companies, of, of, of companies like Apple or Google, or totally utopian. Tech will solve everything. It's going to be great. And so there's not a whole lot in between. I think what the way that I read it, what she's trying to do is try and really interrogate that in between. Is it, can it be emancipatory? Uh, and so to do that, she focuses on cultural producers, so different artists, uh, critical geographers, etc., and the way in which they might use locative or mobile media as a kind of artistic but critical uh, uh, sort of a social political practice to try and, and advance particular political agendas. I think for me several points that she makes are really important. Firstly, because she comes from mobility studies rather than media studies, uh, she has a very expanded view of mobility systems that I think is really interesting. So she talks about the fact that our mobility isn't just mediated by our phones or the inscriptions on our phones, but actually the rhythms that we engage in everyday life are mediated by a whole host of different systems. And this kind of speaks back as well to what the Sato was saying. Uh, and so the example she uses are things like ticketing machines. So if you've ever, you know, you catch the bar uh, and you've got to go through a ticketing barrier. And that slows you down, that changes your mobility, for instance. So there are areas that you can only access uh, if you partake in certain kinds of mobilities. Uh, and so I think, you know, on one hand you have these kind of mobility systems which are often as well characterised by immobility. And I was watching a, a film the other night, which is not a super great film, called Zodiac. Uh, and there's this scene where uh, Mark Ruffalo, who's playing a police officer, has to get out of the car and go to a police box and this idea that because we didn't have mobile phones at that point, we need to create these infrastructures that enabled people like the police to be mobile, but there was still this kind of fixity in that the police boxes were in particular limited places and you could only use them if you had a key. So you get these dichotomies of mobility, immobility, these sort of uh, elastic, I suppose, different stretchy ways of, of thinking about it. On a, on a scalar rather than a, a dichotom. Basically, it's, yeah, it's, it's fluid. It's not a dichotomy. Uh, so 
She also argues that there are complex ties between physical and informational infrastructures that necessitate that mobility. So mobility isn't just about the physical presence of the machine, so the ticketing machine, but actually there are, you need information in order to make that mobility happen as well. So the machine has to read the ticket in the same way that when you use a, a crosswalk, you have to be able to read the information that says stop or go. Uh, so you get all of these different kinds of, of physical regulators of mobility, but they're also informational as well. You can't walk now. You can walk now. Uh, and we can also think about the way in which footpaths are designed. Uh, I'm not sure, sure in the US, but in the UK there are actually different textures that can tell blind people when to stop because they're about to go onto a road as well. So you get these different kinds of informational abilities as well. And in order to make that work, objects have to be able to speak to one another. So in order for location, mobility, place, for this all to work, you need a system where everything can kind of talk to everything else. And so if you get on the BART at Berkeley, the BART, first of all, information needs to know that it is Berkeley BART, that that is the place where it is and that its location is that. And it needs to be able to read the same details from your ticket as well. Uh, and this is even more the case when you're using things like Oyster cards in London or the Octopus card in Hong Kong. So you get this, this idea that in order to convey place and to create mobility and to be able to, you know, say where you are, the machines need to know where they are and they need to speak to something that tells you, tells them where you bought something or what you are as well. Uh, and so, I mean, we can think of as well about people who use their phones so you can just use your phone to go through so many transport systems across the world so you just you know touch your phone and it speaks to the machine and all of that information about your location about uh like you know for finance or you get paid the ticket that way as well all of that kind of flows through uh, and so i think it's not just that the the devices have to be able to speak to each other in terms of their sort of physical hardware as well as their software but I think there also needs to be philosophical compatibility there as well. And I think this is something that, that Shella doesn't necessarily draw out as much as I think she could have. So this idea that if we understand the Berkeley BART, if the Berkeley BART ticket machine understands itself as uh, Berkeley BART and the ticket itself understands itself as, like on the ticket it says, uh, right across from Target, they're not going to speak to each other. There's not a philosophical compatibility there because one's working upon this idea of a, a proper location or a proper sense of place in the in the way that Michelle de Sateau meant it as formal, like a proper noun, whereas one's much more like an informal kind of place, uh, more the way that he was talking when we're talking about myths as well. So there's not that kind of linguistic compatibility there. Uh, and so... I think this is probably one of the reasons we always end up back at the Greeks because we need a philosophical compatibility apparently as well. Um, so she talks then about the way in which place is networked. It's not so different from Soto, uh, but certainly, as, as Kurgan points out, it is very differently mediated and established. So place is a network of different memories, again, precisely as Soto was saying, but I think we also need to take up Kurgan's point that the way in which it's being mediated and the technologies either through GPS or uh, 
remote sensing or mapping, all of these kinds of tools were and have been developed for a very specific military industrial reason, which was this, and again, as Latour points out, this relationship between scientific abstraction, so the idea that you can look at something and map it, and its role in commerce, its role in capitalism, its role in colonialism, which is a military production, its role in imperialism and warfare, its role in conflict. So you, you have at all levels this big, big question mark over uh, how place and space is mediated and by what. But also I think this question as well, and that is perhaps less pessimistic, which is we can understand the place where Lady Dupuis once lived as being the house over there and we can kind of create that mythology. But location or digital technologies don't necessarily preclude those technologies. And I have a friend who died in 2009 from a heart attack. Uh, he was quite young, we're only 22. Uh, and Facebook was only two years in uh, at that point. Um, and well, actually, my first friend who died in 2007, they shut down her Facebook account because it was uh, due to inactivity, uh, which was really distressing because it seemed like it was this kind of haunting ghost of her. But my friend who died in 2009, Daniel, his mum comes back to his Facebook every birthday and writes to him, and it becomes this sort of space of memorial but, you know, also I suppose this space where Daniel used to live in the same way we might think about somewhere that, you know, Lady Dupuis used to live. So you do get these digital uh, haunting kind of spaces um, as well. So there are also perhaps cyber place as well as what we might understand as material place. And so basically from this point, I'm going to be quick here, uh, she talks about remediation and hypermediation, so this idea that old technologies are remediated as new technologies. So we can think here about like the e-card, which is a remediation of a birthday card into an e kind of space, so we can think about the way in which uh, old maps and the conventions of old forms of mapping are remediated into new forms of mapping. I mean, the water is still blue, uh, etc. Uh, we still use very similar kinds of technologies. We still draw an illustrator often as well. Um, and then hypermediation is something that's ever, you know overmediated. And she's taking this from Bolter and Grusin, uh, which is a, quite a well-known book called Remediation that was written around the turn of the 20th and 21st centuries. So um, they talk about the sort of the use of old technological forms and new ones and this remediatory capacity and I mean uh, you kind of get that in the word document as well so the paperclip filing systems like they're not literal filing systems they're not made of files but we get these kinds of remediation of, of old technological ideas in new ones so we're never starting fully from scratch and then she goes and she talks about a bunch of uh, different art projects and I think I'm going to leave these conversations to the uh, actual uh, to our seminar because I think it would be interesting to actually talk about to what degree we think these are actually achieving the aims of an emancipatory locative media. You know, to what degree are things like the Boyd Memorial Project or Tiananmen Squared 
just altering experiences or creating new ways of seeing and is that enough is it enough for us to say well now we can see where people have died does that address the actual problem of people dying and so you know what is then the relationship between the participation of people in these art projects versus a co-construction as a kind of revelatory way of thinking about stuff or about a deconstruction or a radical politics um we'll look as well a little bit more about this in the resistance week um so you know i think i sort of i'll end with this question um that you know there are these big questions over location and the way in which perhaps it's displacing or taking over place and this kind of memory that we might have but at the same time in our own mobilities we're constantly making and remaking these places in ways that i think perhaps are tactically against or sort of tactically undo the supremacy or the primacy of the military industrial way of thinking about location but then you know the question mark here is when we talk when we look at the shellers piece what exactly are we resisting and what tools are we using and and what kind of difference does that make so i'm going to leave you there uh, i look forward to seeing you on thursday hopefully i've spoken a little bit more clearly I think it's going to take a little bit of practice, so <laughs> feedback is always welcome. Um, and again, I'll ask you if I'm being a little bit too complicated here, uh, and then I'll sort of tone it down again for next week if I am. See you on Thursday. Bye. <laughs>